Would you pray with me? God of the resurrection, we pray that you would open our hearts, stir in our guts, soften our minds as we hear a word from you today through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. What a joy and honor it is to be with you today here at Morningside Presbyterian. I hear that it's a smaller crowd than usual as a number of people are up in Montreat. But for me, this is a pretty big crowd. For the past three years or so, I've been leading hospital chapel services. And there we maybe have three or four or eight. Um, so this is great. I'm excited. <laughs> Uh, I want to give thanks to Reverend Katie for inviting me uh, to give a message. I don't know uh, Reverend Katie super well, um, but we're in a clergy development group together. But I consider her and I to be kindred spirits. Maybe that's because she's a Kansan and I'm a Nebraskan. Or maybe it's because we have some Duke Blue Devil blood in us um, although I went there as a graduate student, and let me just say that a few, not those like Katie, but just a few of the Duke undergrad students made me want to root for the North Carolina Tar Heels during, <laughs> during games. Um, I also am really overjoyed with the opportunity and um, life circumstance to meet another person that worships here, uh, Megan. Uh, she has become dear to Lindsay and I's hearts as she is and joining her life with one of Lindsay and I's best friends. So it's just such a joy to be in a church of beloved friends. Um, a little bit more about me. I have been a pastoral-like figure at a number of churches, and I imagine myself facilitating and leading worship in a congregation like this, until chaplaincy and spiritual care found me. I had no imagination for it, it just grabbed me. And so for the last three years, I have been a chaplain at Grady Hospital, Northside Hospital, and currently I'm at the VA. So from a certain vantage point, you might go, well, it makes sense that a chaplain would wanna preach on Job. A chaplain like me, yes, I have had my fair share of witnessing horrible and sacred and beautiful and tragic loss and death and difficulty in the hospital. But everything within me did not want to preach on Job. I mean, just look at our art. I don't know about you, but for me, this provokes a lot of discomfort. Usually when we see someone else's pain, it can be hard to take it in if we're not in touch with our own pain. Here we have an art piece from an African-American woman, Stacy Monday, which says, you stole my history, then tried to sell it back to me. So I wasn't excited to be a guest preacher to come bring this kind of discomfort to you. Really, uh, I landed on Job from a slip of the tongue. 
Uh, I'm in a men's group, and about two months ago, one of our participants was asked to be a lay preacher at his Episcopal church this Sunday, October 17th, on stewardship. And I said, I'm so tired of hearing messages that are inspirational and trying to get people to donate money during stewardship season. Why don't you choose something hard? And so I look up the lectionary for October 17th, and lo and behold, what do I find? Job 38. And I said, you should preach on Job. And no joke, a day later, Reverend Katie asked for me to preach on October 17th. And I'm going to take that slip of the tongue as a Holy Spirit invitation to do some hard work together during this time. So here we are with the book of Job. We're going to kind of go over it a little bit. And where do we begin? I actually want us to begin in a place that might be a little uncomfortable for us Presbyterians. I want us to begin in our bodies. So if you would be open to it, I ask that you would sit up a little bit. And if you want, just to take a breath in and a breath out. And if you're even more courageous, close your eyes for a moment. And just do a body scan. Where do you feel any tension? Is it in your shoulders or in your neck? In your knees or any tingling? And just bring gentle awareness and attention. Just honor it for a moment. Thank you. I recognize, again, us Presbyterians, we want to get to the text and get in our heads. But Job is a book that takes seriously the body. In fact, Job is a book, this book of suffering, that tries to cognitively understand and wrestle with the great question of why. Why, God? Why suffering? Why is life unfair? Spoiler alert, there's no answer. In fact, it's Job's friends who get stuck in their head trying to find a clear, neat, tidy answer to suffering that proves to be the path that shouldn't be taken. In fact, Job presents us an opportunity to get in touch with our bodies when it comes to suffering. Have you heard of this book, or at least the phrase, the body keeps the score? The book's argument is that when we experience some type of suffering, some type of trauma, some type of difficult event, Energy floods us. Fight, flight, freeze happens. And if we don't find ways to exercise that energy, moving, screaming, sobbing, yoga, it can get stuck and trapped and lodged in us. And that over time, as we go forth in life, 
we can stay bottled up and other events happen that reactivate that trauma. What Joe presents for us in this book is how to grieve, how to let it all out. In modern day parlance, have you ever heard of Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief? Denial, shock, bargaining, anger, depression, acceptance. And as I've seen, and I'm sure many of you know, it's never an orderly thing. It's chaotic, it's a pinball, it's a whirlwind of these different fluctuations. And so as a refresher for those that might have forgotten about the book of Job, honestly, I have never read the book of Job all the way through until this sermon. Um, Job is a pious, godly, wealthy man. And then in an instant, everything is gone. All his wealth, his 10 children die, his own body starts to have sores. And at first he experiences shock and denial. He won't cuss God out in chapter two. He sits in silence for seven days and his friends come to join him. But then chapter three, anger erupts. He screams out, curse the day I was born. Later, again, as it's all wave, Job 7, he says, I'm not going to keep silent anymore. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. In 27, he says, as surely as God has lived, who denied me justice, the Almighty who has made me taste bitterness in my soul. As long as I have life within me, I will never admit that you are in the right. Till I die, I will not deny my integrity. I am innocent. Bargaining comes up in, in Job 6. He says, oh God, just give me one request that you can just end me now. It's too much. In Job 29, he goes back and he says, Oh, how I long for the months of my past when the Almighty was with me and my children were around me, where whoever heard of me spoke well. And of course, depression hits him. In Job 6, he says, If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Job 17, he laments, my spirit is broken. My days are cut short. The grave awaits me. Surely mockers surround me. And then even at times throughout this roller coaster of a book, acceptance shows up. In Job 9, he says, well, how can I dispute with God? How I, can I find words to argue with God? That's a lot. It's intense. Job lets it all out. This maybe is a master class on how to pray. 
Now, I haven't been taught to pray like that, have you? Another slip of the tongue happened the other day when my therapist was saying, you seem to have had a Job-like experience. I had a nephew in the ICU, six-month-year-old. I had a grandmother-like figure who died and I didn't say goodbye. Workplace has been challenging and there's been bullying, been stretched thin. And when he said that, you know what happened to me? I said, no, Job's suffering was worse. I stayed composed, cool. I couldn't even scream out in anger. Which makes me wonder, have I, did I miss an opportunity to grieve? How in trying to stay in control did I lock in some of the pain and some of the hardship? Which makes me ask a question to you. What would it look like for you, for me, to grieve more fully? To even risk losing a little bit of control? This brings us to our passage today, chapter 38, where God finally answers Job. 37 chapters, really 36 talks in the first chapter, but 36 chapters, it's all about human conversation and grief, and finally God shows up. And you know how God shows up? Not as a good chaplain. I almost titled my sermon that because God doesn't try to address Job's pain. He doesn't say, I'm so sorry. It must be so difficult. Rather, God, in my own paraphrase, says, where were you at the Big Bang? How did you take in the formation of the stars? Where were you when I set up the earth and the sea? Are you in the snow and the hail? Do you send forth lightning? Do you feed the raven going forth in chapter 39 and 40? Do you help with the goat? Do you give consciousness to humans? Do you care for the ostrich? For me, at first, again, the first read, I go, this is not a very satisfying, compassionate answer. But I think, and I wonder, I want to explore with you, is that if we skip all those 37 chapters and try to get to God's response, we miss out what the process of life is. I have a hunch that in grieving and letting it all out, Job made room to hear a word of God. And in making room, Job becomes satisfied. Maybe, I'm actually quite certain, because I've seen this in the hospital a lot, that many of you in lamenting your deepest loss 
there comes a point on the other side of such grief that you experience something that you can't even put into words. A feeling, not a thought, that God is holding you up. I sense that within Job. Which leads me to my last question. What if the thing you're most afraid of, what if the thing you're afraid to grieve, like I have been at times, is actually the avenue and pathway to our greatest joy? And here we turn to Jesus, of course, our new Job, this man of sorrows, but also person of great vitality. I'm not sure about you, but when you imagine or experience Jesus, how do you picture him? How do you picture how he carries himself with others? For me, it would be easy, and I've been trained to think of him as a very rational, stoic, composed person. But over the years, I have started to see Jesus as one who feels the fullness of his surroundings, who is so in tune with the flows of life around him that he can express anger at cruel and unjust systems, who can feel sad with the disease and loss, who can experience disgust at elitism and narrow judgments, who has anxiety and fear about the future, and yet who's able to laugh at a sarcastic, maybe crude joke, and yet who's able to sing praises and and feel content when he eats a good meal and yet who can feel the peace that comes from being in nature and hearing the birds and the mountains and the trees. Could it be that Jesus was so alive to life because he was so intimate with his own grief? Could it be that Jesus was so aware of others' sufferings because he was in tune with his own? What do we know about Jesus? He was the great healer. Could it be that he was unable to unlock the stored up trauma in other people's bodies with a touch or with a word because he was so in touch with his pain? and his impending suffering. Maybe this is the pathway before us. It takes great courage to release any semblance of control, composure, to be like Job in all of our grief. But thank God for Job and a master class on prayer. Because what's our alternative? If we don't grieve fully, we end up bitter and disappointed and stuck. I would rather choose to be faithful, hopeful, loving, because God is on the other side, resurrecting us.
Amen.